chapter 10 in the story is entitled Standing Tall and Falling Hard. But before we jump to 1 Samuel where we read from this week, the last verse of the book of Judges reads like this. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. That's the last phrase of the book of Judges. Everyone did as they saw fit. The violence and the inconsistency, the sin and the idolatry that was detailed for us in the historical book of Judges uh, is being carried forward now from that last statement till the first part of 1 Samuel. Nothing really has changed. And when everyone does as they see fit, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. By the time you get to 1 Samuel, there's still no king. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. The situation for the nation of Israel is still bad. They are still under the oppression of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And there didn't seem to be any end in sight for their struggles and their continuous conflict with other nations around them. But that last verse in the book of Judges seems to hint towards a growing desire in the heart of Israel. They seem to correlate what was not going right in their nation with the fact that they had no king. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own sight. Now, if you read with us through the chapter 10 of the story this week, it started off really well. Uh, It started off positive about a woman named Hannah. It's a story of God's amazing grace and kindness. Hannah and her husband struggled with infertility, and she cries out to God not only for a child, she cries out to God for a son. And God is gracious to her. He favors her. She delivers a son, and you've probably heard of him. His name is Samuel, the namesake of the book And Hannah is so overwhelmed with gratitude, and in keeping with the promise she made to God if he would open her womb, she takes Samuel to Eli, the priest in the temple, and she gives Samuel back to God. And Samuel is raised as a priest in training in the temple. Uh, and, And you have to understand, Eli is not alone in the temple. He has two sons that are there with him. And Eli's two sons are living in distortion of the will of God, and they are a negative influence on Samuel. But Samuel's heart is so committed to God, he does not succumb to the influence, the negative influence of Eli's sons. He stands against that and grows up to become a man of God, a prophet and a priest for the nation of Israel. But like many of us have, and most of us will, Samuel grew old. But as he grew old, as you read in many cases, and we know of many cases in our own lives, where the sons do not walk in the same integrity that their fathers have, and this aging prophet and priest and his unfaithful sons only serve as a stirring of the quiet desire in the heart of the people of God for a king. They're dissatisfied. So the elders of Israel gather together in a scene that is reminiscent of a protest. And they represent the people and the frustrations of the people that have come to a boiling point. And they feel like if they just had a king, everything would be better. They would be like all the other nations around them. Their problems would go away. And it seemed like everyone had bought into this idea that a king would save us all. Everybody except God himself. That idea had escaped his notice. 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 4 reads, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they... 
But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So what is it that troubles you? We are grateful prophets. You have led us for many years. God has led us. Samuel, you are not as young as you were. We are worried. Who will speak to the Lord after you? Who will lead us against the Philistines? My sons will inherit my place. Your sons are corrupt. My sons have been brought up to trust in God and obey his laws. Everything I've done for you, I have done because I walk in God's ways. We know that they take bribes. Everyone knows it. They shame your good name. So, when you are gone and the Philistines return and we look to your sons to call on God, will God answer? No. He will not. Then what do you want? A king. As other nations have. But look what other nations' kings do. They become tyrants. They make slaves of their people. Not if they are chosen by God. Anointed by his righteous prophet. By you. You would reject our God. God promised us this land. This is God's kingdom. He is our only king. You have the ear of the Lord Samuel. You must ask him to choose a king for us. Leave me alone. All of you. With all the emotion that Samuel can muster, he tries to warn the elders and the nation of Israel that A king is not always what they might imagine. The other nations of the world's kings force them into slavery. They they become tyrants. They tax you all to build their own empires, all to build their own kingdoms. But the people don't let the warning register. They, They feel in their hearts already it's decided a king will fix everything. Sometimes our heavenly father does what an earthly father will do. He allows immature children to get what they desire. A parent that has a kid that's always wanting candy and never wants to eat right may one day just say, okay, for the next 24 hours, eat as much of whatever it is you want, eat all you want. And if that child follows through with their own cravings, their own desires, they'll be sick by the end of the day and they will realize that the boundaries that the family has established, the father or the mother, is not there because they're trying to be a killjoy or they're trying to be mean, but those boundaries are there because they care about them and they love them. There are a lot of people who misunderstand the don'ts of the Bible. They misunderstand the the Ten Commandments. They feel like God is a cosmic killjoy laying boundaries in their lives, trying to keep them from enjoying life. But they don't realize that the God of heaven created us, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And the reason there would be boundaries anywhere in life is because he knows when we cross, cross those boundaries, they are harmful to us. But sometimes God says yes, even when he knows it's not best, so that we might learn a lesson. 
Sometimes we're asking God to make us successful. I want more money, a larger salary, give me a nicer home, or I want the corner office over there that so-and-so has. And we wind up getting so much success that we look back to a point in our lives where life was simpler and we slept better at night and we wonder if what God gave us was what was actually best for us. And a question between a father and son where the father was imparting wisdom, he asked his son a probing question. He said, would you rather be rich and depressed or poor and happy? And the son replied, can I not be moderately wealthy and moderately depressed? (laughs) Looking back... It's easy to see that Israel chose a king over God because their choice seemed to make so much logical sense. It was obvious. I mean, every other nation had a powerful king. Why can't we have one? But the reason it seemed like the right option is because they were so nearsighted that they did not see the big picture of what God was doing through them and in the world. They had forgotten. They were so focused on the lower story of their own lives, they had forgotten how God was using Using them as a nation to write his upper story. The decision to choose an earthly king over the kingship of God had devastating consequences on the nation of Israel. And when they chose a king, it wasn't just one wrong choice. They were making three foolish choices. And those choices are the foolish choices that we often make every day. Choice number one, when they chose a king, they were choosing power over purpose. You remember in Genesis 12 when we started this thing and we were talking about Abraham and Sarah and how God had chosen them to be the patriarch and the matriarch of this new nation that God was building. And he said, Abraham, you will be a blessing to all nations and the entire earth is going to be blessed through you. You have to understand, God didn't just make a nation. He was making a nation with a purpose, with intentionality. It wasn't some haphazard, accidental whim for God to go into the nation building business and the more you read and the deeper you go into the Bible or into the story you're probably going to realize that the story of God isn't something he made up as he was going along there are no twists and turns and unexpected plots that catch the God of the universe by surprise and he says oh no I better send this script back for editorial review this isn't happening as I planned it no before the foundations of the world were ever laid God had a plan plan. And the way that God led Israel, the way they won their battles, the way his power was on display through them was purposeful. It was intentional. If you remember when we first started about God building a nation, we said the reason he's going to establish a nation through Abraham and establish Israel is because he wants to reveal his presence, his power, and his plan to the entire world. He is going to use Israel as a vehicle to reveal his presence, his power, and his plan. And obviously now you are that vehicle for God to reveal his presence and his power and his plan to nations because he is still writing that particular story. Israel was established purposefully and for a point but here in first Samuel chapter number eight the people have so focused on their present day situation they have forgotten where their lives fit into the upper story big picture and purpose of God and they make a small choice that leads them down the wrong road Samuel says the people say to Samuel you're old your sons don't follow your ways appoint a king to lead us so that we can be like the other nations you 
heard it in the man's voice on the video a moment ago. He said, Samuel, what's going to happen when the Philistines come against us? He was driven by fear. All of Israel is motivated by fear. They see their surrounding neighbors building great armies underneath a military king. And they're worried. What would happen if they attack us and we don't have a king and a strong military like they do? They decided they needed power. They needed power they could see. Power that would intimidate others. Power that compared to every other nation. They wanted to touch and feel their power. They had forgotten that their greatest military conquests were when they were dramatically outnumbered. They had forgotten that their greatest military conquests were when they were outmanned and outarmed and outskilled. They forgot their purpose, the reason for being. They forgot that their victories were not supposed to bring them glory, but their victories were supposed to bring the glory to God, that everyone would see who he was and his power because they forgot the purpose. They wanted a king. They wanted a strong army. They wanted respect. They wanted power. And the temptation they choose power over purpose is still strong for every one of us today. We think that our success will be an outgrowth of our pedigree or it will be an outgrowth of our talent or our victories will come simply because of sweat equity, because of our hard work. But we have to remember as his people, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways and thoughts are higher than ours. That's why God specializes in raising up the unknown. He specializes in putting his hand on the underqualified and the misfit because Because he promised to use the weak to confound the strong. He promised to use the foolish to confound the wise. And the purpose in doing it backwards is to reveal himself. To reveal his power. Not the skill set of whatever vessel he chooses to use. To be completely honest. There are times when I struggle with choosing power over purpose. I'm tempted to think that my value and my self-worth to God and to people comes from being successful in the ministry. And you know what that leads to? That leads to early mornings and late nights and working your fingers to the nub for the approval of God and for the approval of your peers and for the approval of people. And, 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 and you, 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 you get this, what that really says, it's not just hard work that people praise. Underneath a lot of that hard work and self-effort and human effort is trying to do what only God can do and hurry things along while we're supposed to be trusting and waiting on God. Human effort and hard work is not bad, but there comes a moment in time when our human effort and our hard work is a display of our pride. And do you know what pride is? It is sin. It's choosing power over purpose. It's living in the flesh rather than relying on the spirit. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 20 and 7? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Our temptation is to choose power over purpose. And the Lord is calling us today to reflect in our own lives and look at his purpose and let his purpose take precedent over our desire to control the situation in our life. The temptation for Israel was to choose a power they could see over a purpose they could not see. And the choice they made to cry out for a king changed the course of their history. Samuel warned them, but Israel made the choice for a military leader in the form of a king anyway. 
1 Samuel 8, verse 19, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us, to go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted to be like everybody else. I want you to make sure you get the statement that I'm about to say. The desire for normalization is usually a step away from God. When we want to blend in with the rest of the culture that we live in, typically that is a departure from God's will for our life. We are never told in Scripture to blend in. We are told to stand out. Matter of fact, uh, there is a passage that says we are to be a peculiar people. Now, a lot of people have taken that to extreme and taken that verse to think that that's an excuse for us to be weird. And for God to ask us to be a peculiar people is not an excuse for us to be weird. The church isn't supposed to be a granola church full of fruits, nuts, and flakes. You've got to understand that. Peculiar people... Is, is, is a called out people. Matter of fact, when you read about the church in the New Testament, there are phrases like set apart. And the literal translation of that word is the called out ones. The Bible talks about how we are to be strangers and aliens in our culture. We are not to be of this world. And the people are saying to Samuel, we need a king. We got to fit in. We got to be like everybody else. We need a king. And God says to Samuel, give them what they want. Anoint anoint Saul to be the first king of Israel. Normalization is usually a step away from God. Now Saul would have been a perfect choice to be a king. I mean, he's young, he's tall, he's strong, he's handsome, he's intelligent. But no king, no matter how perfect they may appear in the world's eyes, can match up to the kingship or the headship of God. And the way this unfolds, reveals how nearsighted Israel really was. They wanted power more than purpose, but that's not the only wrong choice they made. When choosing a king over God, they chose circumstances over salvation. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel's starting to begin his transition out of leadership. He's about to retire. He's giving his farewell speech. He gathers everyone together, draws their attention back to the past, to the earlier chapters of their lives, at how God had miraculously moved for them. He reminds them of God's power, of God's provision, of God's salvation, about how God led them out of Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea, how he raised up judges to lead them. And he basically recaps everything that we've been studying through the journey of the story since the beginning of the year and then in a very subtle way he's trying to say to them remember Saul remember Israel how our nation got to where it is today it was God not man and then he takes his speech to a crescendo and goes for the jugular and in 1 Samuel 12 12 But when you saw that Nahash king of the Ammonites was moving against you you said to me no We want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king, that's important, if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. No matter what God had done for Israel in the past, no matter how powerful or unfailing he had been to them, the current circumstances for them were so overwhelming, they became so nearsighted, they couldn't see the big picture. I mean, after 
after God had done all of these miracles through Joshua at Jericho and through Gideon and Deborah and Jael and Samson, you think it would get into your heart if you look back and reflected on what God had done, that his supernatural power would work through them in the future. But before we become too condescending to the nation of Israel, we have to ask ourselves the same question. How do we respond when we're overwhelmed by our circumstances? Too often, whatever it is in our life at the moment blinds us to the work of God in our lives. Our circumstances cause us to forget what God has done for us in the past. It causes us to forget that God will be faithful to us in the present and in the future. We forget that He is the one who saved us. We forget that He is the one who restored a marriage that looked like it was over we forget that he is the one that gave our life purpose and meaning that he is the one that helped us in the middle of that unhealthy work relationship that he tied the loose ends in our financial situation that he is the one who renewed our hope that delivered us from addiction we seem to forget all of those things when life starts closing in on us and circumstances blind us to who he really is Verse 14 and verse 15 that I read to you are very important because Samuel seems to say that even though this wasn't God's perfect will, that if they will choose to follow him now from now on, they can still land on their feet if they and the king will walk in obedience to God. And that leads us to the third wrong choice they made when they chose a king. They chose power over purpose. They chose circumstances over salvation. But then they choose options over obedience. Saul starts off really good as a king. I mean, he's head and shoulders above everybody else, literally. He's a big man in stature, but he starts off really well. He listens to God. He listens to Samuel. He walks in obedience. He goes to war just the way God says. God's on his side. But all of that changed when Saul became too nearsighted to see the big picture of how his kingdom and his kingship was to work underneath the authority of God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is sent by God to wage war against the Amalekites and God would give them the victory. However, God warned them, take no spoils of war. I don't want you to take anything. Don't bring anything back. Don't take any of their livestock. Don't take any of their troops. Don't take any hostages. Saul got his army together. He went out to battle. He was clear of every direction that God had asked, and he wins. But here's the clincher. Two words in 1 Samuel 15 and 9 changed the history of Israel. Two words. It says in verse 9 of chapter 15, but Saul. Now you can read all the details you want to after that. But the previous verses are everything God had said. This is exactly how you're to do it. Verse 9, but Saul. It all hinges on those two words. Instead of destroying everything as God had commanded him to do, he takes King Agag hostage, the leader of the Amalekites. He takes the best of the sheep, the best of the cattle, and everything that was valuable he took as spoils of war. And Samuel hears about it in anger. He comes to confront Saul. And when Saul sees Samuel coming, he says this, verse 13, Hey, Samuel, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the instructions of the Lord. He was like the little kid that had chocolate smeared across his face in the kitchen and said, I didn't take any cookies. He's fessing up because his guilt causes him to cover up his sin. 
It's a guilty conscience. Listen to Samuel's response. Well, then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? In other words, if you did everything that God told you to do, then why does it sound like a zoo right here? And Saul immediately begins to justify his actions. And you know how we justify our actions? We blame somebody else. That's what Eve and Adam did with each other. And that's what Saul did. When you sin and you want to justify your sin, what do you do? You blame somebody else. He said in verse 15, Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites, and they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to to, uh, sacrifice. Yeah, that's it. To sacrifice to the Lord. But we totally destroyed the rest. Saul immediately, we would say, threw the soldiers under the bus. He threw them under the chariot. And when he was confronted, he doesn't respond with humility or brokenness, but he is defensive in criticism. How do you act when you're criticized? How do you react? Sometimes criticism is from godly, constructive sources, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes criticism is meant to tear down. But how do you respond when you're criticized? Do you respond in a defensive way? or Are you humble and broken in that criticism? Uh, because defense... Underneath criticism, it is a sign of pride. And here's a note for all of us. When someone criticizes you or questions you about some behavior, the first thing we ought to do is listen and ask ourselves the question, is there any truth in what they're saying? Even if I don't like them, even if I I know they don't mean well of me, are they able to see something about my life that I cannot see? Is there something I need to adjust? A humble person, when things go wrong, looks for a way to take some type of responsibility, but a proud person blames everybody else. This is what I've learned. Even when I receive criticism from people that I know don't have my best interests in mind, the only way I'll ever be smarter than my critics is to learn from them. They'll never learn from me, but if I choose to learn from them, I'll always be smarter than they are. And you've got to listen to this exchange between Samuel and Saul as Saul tries to finagle his way out of the situation. In verse 19, it says, Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul says, But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agad, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from their plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But listen to what Samuel says. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. He says, Saul, your heart of obedience is better than your token offerings. Your heart of obedience is better than what you burn in the altars or what you throw on an offering plate. Saul, was trying to figure out the best option. What God had asked didn't make sense for Saul. He couldn't figure out what God was up to. So he took matters in his own hands. He rationalized the situation. He looked at his options. What he did is not necessarily a bad thing. Getting an offering ready to give to the Lord, sacrificing is not a bad thing unless God commands you to do something else. Saul was Almost obedient. But God didn't want sacrifice. He wanted obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Almost obedience is disobedience. Impartial obedience is disobedience. 
God wanted obedience. Saul said, you know what? I think this will be the best option. We'll get some good out of this. We'll, we'll use the livestock. We can utilize this king as a prisoner of war and leverage it against some of our enemies. He has his own agenda. He did what he thought best, but it was disobedience. I recently heard a statement. You know, there's a book called The Five Love Languages, and it's very helpful in marriages and families because your spouse has a love language and you have a love language and you need to give in a way that means the most to them and, 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 and you need to, uh, they need to understand what means the most to you. I heard in that context someone say that God's love language is obedience. And I love it. It's not legalistic like obedience that we earn our way into good standing with him by our obedience. It just means that we put a smile on his face that possibly the greatest act of worship that we will ever offer to him is when we say yes to him in obedience even when we don't understand where all the loose ends are going to be tied up. Obedience is trust. Are you and I like Saul? You ever give God options? You know, God, I know you really, I feel like you really want me to do this, but either one of these three things over here would be so much better. I know you want me to go on that missions trip. I know you do. But, but you know, if I, if, I, if I sacrificially gave to send somebody else, I'm still partnering in missions, right? I know, I know God, you want me to, Share my faith with my neighbor or my coworker, but how about I wait until Easter or Christmas and I'll invite them to church? And we would love for you to invite your neighbor or your coworker to church, but if God has asked you to share your faith with them, that's not obedience. God tells you to change careers, He's calling you into ministry. He's leading you down a path to seminary, but it doesn't make sense. You don't know where it's going to come from. And you think, you know what I'll do? I'll just volunteer a whole lot. I'll turn up the notch in the church and volunteer a whole lot and fulfill whatever's going on in my heart that way. And as much as we would love for you, and that's great news for us, and we can plug you in in a whole lot of different places, if God said something else, that's not obedience. Can I tell you what God thinks when he hears statements like that? And there could be a list of a thousand more. God must be thinking, they really don't want me to be their king. They want somebody else or something else. They want their options, not obedience to me. Saul couldn't see the big picture because of his pride. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Israel's cry for a king was marked by a series of nearsighted choices. They couldn't see that by choosing a human king, they were choosing against God. They couldn't see that their lust for power derailed God's purpose for them as a nation. They couldn't see that God's salvation was still there in the midst of trying circumstances. Saul wanted to create his own options rather than obeying God's word. He was too nearsighted to see that God's work and God's big picture, there was a plan in all of that. I think we're... Faced with the same question today. Do you want God as your king? Or is someone or something else competing for what rightly belongs to him on the throne of your heart? Will we obey? Or will we rationalize? 
He wanted to be the king of your heart so badly that he left heaven to come to earth to prove it. And Jesus, God in the flesh, was beaten by Roman guards and he stood silently and he endured it. You know why? He was choosing purpose over power. And when he was mocked while hanging on the cross and suffocating to death, he was choosing salvation over circumstances. And when he prayed, Father, not my will but yours be done, he was choosing obedience over his options. And when he defeated death and rose from the grave three days later and walked out with the transformed and transfigured body, he was making the statement in his resurrection that I am the only king you will ever need. I want you to stand with me, if you will, all over this place today. And I'm going to ask if the prayer team will make themselves available this morning to pray with you. I want us to let God get back in our hearts where he rightfully belongs. He wants to be the king of our schedule. He wants to be the king of our choices, the king of our behavior, the king of our relationships, the king of our finances, the king of where we work. He's not asking for our obedience today. Because it's the only way to make him love us. Because you can't make him love you anymore. Following in obedience to God is is not a legalistic requirement to earn his favor. Following in obedience to God is the purest act of worship that you can offer him. I trust you. I may not understand you, but I trust you. If you say this, and option B looks better, I'm going to go against human nature because I trust you. I'm going to do what you said, Lord. I'm going to choose purpose over power, salvation over circumstances. I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to choose obedience to you over all the options that I have today as an act of worship. A moment ago when I was, I believe, spoken prophetically today, there are some of us that are heavy, heavy situations that have so distracted us from who God is. And the Holy Spirit is dealing with you today to let somebody pray with you a prayer of agreement. That you begin to see God for who he is. And not let your circumstances taint the image of God in your life. That you can hope again. Believe again. The fact of coming to the altar today will be in itself an act of obedience. For somebody else, you may have been in our services for some time. But you've not yet made a decision to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. I'm asking you today... Choose salvation over whatever excuse you could give. You can rationalize this decision for the rest of your life, and it'll have consequences. But you can choose life. You can choose Him. You can choose to let Him be the king of your heart, regardless of who will despise you or reject you or what it will cost you. 
I believe his favor will be greater than what it will cost. And I invite you today to let him be the king of your heart. These people are standing ready today to pray with you. Whatever the struggle is defined in your life, I believe the Holy Spirit is saying, pray with someone in a prayer of agreement about whatever that area is in your life, you, you name it, and come and say to him again, forgive me, Lord, for self-effort, for pride. I'm going to trust you. I believe you're writing a story And I've forgotten the bigger plan and the bigger purpose and the bigger story. And I've taken matters into my own hands and the weight of it is killing me. I need you to bear the burden today that you and you alone can bear. While I pray, if the Spirit of God is drawing you to an altar and it's an act of obedience to come, then I want you to obey. While I pray today, because obedience sets miracles in motion. Father... I ask as people in this room display their trust in you by obedience to the drawing and the wooing of the Holy Spirit. I pray that their very act of obedience will set a miracle in motion. Today, I pray that your hand and your mercy and your grace will be extended this way. That they will choose in this room purpose over power. They will choose salvation over circumstances. That they will choose obedience to you over their options. Set people free. Give hope. Give life again. Redefine everything by the power of your spoken word. In Jesus' name. The altars are open today. We invite you to come. The atmosphere will remain worshipful. God bless you.